So Rebirth, uh, <clears throat> three-part series designed to lead us into Easter. Uh, it's, it really focuses on a man in the scriptures who isn't mentioned a lot, but when he's mentioned, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. Um, a man named Nicodemus. So each of the three weeks leading into Easter, we're going to focus on a part of his life. But this concept of rebirth, you know, what's going to happen is we're going to look at one of the most, I would say, amazing recorded conversations in all, of, in all the Bible that Jesus had. I mean, it's, uh, it stands out in some very compelling ways. And so I hope we'll be able to live into it and live out of it. Nicodemus himself, we, we're told, you can notice here in your handout, or if you want to follow in the scriptures in John 3 in your handout, we put the scriptures in there as well. It says there was a man named Nicodemus. He was a Jewish religious leader who was also a Pharisee. So from the very beginning, we're told some things. One of the things we know about Nicodemus is that he was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was one of the two major political parties of Jesus' day. They were religious political parties. We have a two-party system. They pretty much had one as well, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. So was the Apostle Paul, for that matter. Pharisees, in contrast to the Sadducees, were the more conservative of the two. They believed in an active God. They were, they were meticulous students of the, the law, which was the teachings of the Older Testament, particularly the Law of Moses. They were devout, committed, highly structured. The word itself, I think Pharisee has come to mean probably something that's more thought of in a derisive way, right? Because we say someone's pharisaical, they're like self-righteous. It often speaks to the worst kind of religiosity. Someone's self-righteous. Um, but they were also sincere, and not all of them can be just put together in one group. Many of them deeply loved God. In fact, I think they all thought they did. Uh, but they just had a, some of them had a very difficult time with Jesus. Nicodemus, however, was intrigued. Now, he was a Pharisee. We also know that he was not just any Pharisee. Later on, the scriptures will teach us and tell us that he was part of an elite group of men called the Sanhedrin. Uh, this particular group functioned almost like a Supreme Court. They did not have the power, though, uh, of capital punishment. That alone was left to Rome as an exclusive right, which is why, by the way, when Jesus is delivered by them captive, they, have, they don't have the, the ability to um, actually have him executed. They have to take him to the Roman governor, Pilate, hence he becomes part of the crucifixion story. Pilate has to make the decision whether or not Jesus is to live or die. Uh, there was a tremendous amount of resentment towards Rome. We could talk about that all day. They, they felt like they were unoppressed. They had to pay taxes to a foreign tyrant. But they also had the Pax Romana that was the peace of Rome that was enforced with violence. But nonetheless, the roads were fairly safe. Um, and people could live, for the most part, in Judea, which was the part where Jerusalem is located, and Galilee, for that matter, which was up in the north, which is where Jesus came from. They could live relatively safe and secure because Rome was there. But there was always a bitter, subtle resentment that was also sort of underlying all discussions, like why should we pay taxes? What do you think about this, Jesus? I say all that because the Sanhedrin was that governing body. Nicodemus was a part of that body. It was a very powerful group of highly intelligent, highly educated men who, uh, honestly, they knew, the, they knew the, and they knew the scriptures. We also know that Nicodemus, most of his peers did not have a favorable impression of Jesus. Some of them were, not only did they outright reject his claim as Messiah, which people were suggesting, which they found incredulous, like, there's no way. He's an untrained teacher from the north. That's hill country to them. He has no formal educational training. 
There could be no denying his words. And his power, they couldn't quite figure out either. It seemed to have more in common with Old Testament prophets. So some of them had grudgingly given him a place of perhaps a prophet of God. But he says things that are very difficult and actually disruptive. And in fact, they saw Jesus, a vast majority of Nicodemus's peers, saw Jesus as a significant threat to the delicate balance, to the detente that they had worked out with Rome. So it helps you to understand why Jesus ends up allowing himself to be crucified. Why would people want to have that happen? Because he was causing problems for the power structure. Now, Nicodemus is part of that power structure. He, though, in contrast to some of his peers, finds some of Jesus' words convicting. There's a part of what Jesus is saying that moves him deeply, and he is beginning to wonder. He's doubting his doubt. He's beginning to wonder, is it possible that Jesus is indeed from God, and is it even possible that he may be the promised one? He, he wasn't sure. He couldn't talk about it with his associates, very few of them. A few of them we know did actually secretly believe, but they couldn't afford the risk. We'll, we'll talk about that also in the coming weeks and a little bit later here. They couldn't really afford the risk. So even Nicodemus, as we're going to see, he's going to come to Jesus under the cloak of darkness. He cannot afford for what it may cost him professionally to come in the daylight. He asks for a secret meeting to be arranged with Jesus. We read about it here. It says that after dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Now, that conversation, imagine, okay, in our mind's eye, let's imagine, let's imagine Nicodemus making his way in the darkness, through the streets of Jerusalem, they're not lit. There's no gas lights. There's no electric. There's nothing. It's, it's dark. He has a small entourage, perhaps, maybe even just one or two people. He makes his way to the place where Jesus is. Jesus himself is probably in a room, in a house that's large enough to have his disciples with him. The door is opened. They say hello. They greet one another. And it's, it's a somewhat courteous moment, I would suppose. But we know that, and again, in our minds, let's think about that room and what it would have looked like. It's, it's nighttime. There's no sunlight coming in at all. The lighting system would have been maybe a, a few oil lamps. So there's a flickering kind of light in the room, very low. Perhaps certain corners are illuminated. Jesus and Nicodemus begin to have a discussion about spiritual things. And let's watch, and again, watch how that discussion may have gone. I, wanted, I was looking at this, and I wanted to kind of just sort of get us to think about it for a moment. So look at this. After dark one evening, he came to speak with Jesus, Rabbi. That's the Bible. Rabbi is teacher. And... What, what he says next is the language of courtesy and respect. Now, oh, one more thing. Nicodemus is clearly much older than Jesus. He's an older man who has, uh, again, established reputation, great knowledge base. All right. So for him, he's, his courteous interaction with Jesus is rabbi, teacher. We all know that all is a bit of... His peers did not believe, some of them did not believe he was from God, but he, he nonetheless said, you all, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Well, if that was true, then why are you coming at night? Now, the fact of the matter is, he, it was almost as if, and I, and I hope we can understand it, it's almost as if what Nicodemus is saying is that um, I would like to know, are you indeed from God? Why are you saying the things that you're saying? What is your purpose? And are you indeed from God as I, I think you may be? So in many ways, Nicodemus is opening 
salvo in this conversation is as much a statement of, can you clarify who you are for me? Because that's the real purpose of why I want to meet with you. I don't know who you are. Your words are unlike words I've heard. You're clearly a teacher sent from God, I believe. But what is your purpose? Why do you say the things you do? He wants to know. He's intrigued. He's compelled. He's really been drawn towards him. And he's willing to risk some things, although, again, carefully. But he's open. He's open at some level. Now, watch what Jesus does. Because Jesus essentially, when he asks them that, essentially, who, who are you, basically, right? Um, we see your miraculous signs, Nicodemus says. They're evidence that God is clearly with you. We cannot deny the power in what you do, in your words. But but I, I would like to know more. And you can see what Jesus says. Well, I tell you the truth. Now watch this. Unless you, here's the famous phrase. Unless you are born again, Nicodemus. I, I, I tell you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What is that? Nicodemus says essentially, who are you? He says, well, unless, you, unless you are born again at a spiritual level, you will not be able to understand or grasp the reality of God that I am bringing. It will elude you. Uh, what, are you what are you talking about, Nicodemus? What do you mean? Nicodemus explains. Look, you see it. I, what are you talking about? Born again. What does that even mean? Can an old, can an old man like me go back into, into his mother's womb and... Be born again. That's surely that's not what you're saying. What are you actually saying? It's almost like he's wrestling with how is that even possible? What are you talking about? That makes no sense to me. Born again. Use clearer language. Jesus replied, I, I, I assure you that no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of the spirit. Now he's saying basically is this. Look, you can have a natural birth of water. We're all born in water at some level. We come out of our mother's womb in it. Um, unless you are born of the natural and of the spiritual, this is, this, you are not going to be able to move forward. I, I, I tell you this of the truth. Um, humans can reproduce. Look at that. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. I'm talking about a spiritual dynamic that is now available in a way that was never available before. I'm talking about spiritual life, spiritual birth. It's something that goes beyond the laws that you've learned. It has to do with what God is doing. God is doing a new thing in front of your eyes, Nicodemus. And I know you can sense it. I know you believe at some level that God is up to something. I am telling you right now, this is what I call it. I call it being born again. So don't be surprised, Jesus says, when I say to you, you must be born again. I'm talking about a spiritual awakening of sorts, a new birth. And he says, and look, don't allow your intellect, which was prodigious, to enter this this understanding of what I'm talking about, the key to the, no, okay, it's almost like Jesus saying the key to the natural is tangible, logical, and reasoned. But the key to the spiritual in this regard has to do with openness and faith. Are you open to me? And, and then he says, look, so, so don't be surprised when I say to you, you must be born again. Look, the wind blows wherever it wants. It's, it's kind of like this. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. But, but now watch, this man, he's frustrated. He's, he's kind of stumbling to keep up with Jesus. How are these things possible? What are you talking about? It doesn't make sense. I kind of sympathize with Nicodemus to some level. Jesus replies, you, and I don't think he did this in a derisively mean way, you are a respected Jewish teacher, and yet you don't understand these things. Mm. 
I assure you, we tell you, we tell you what we know and what we have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. Speaking in a generalization there. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, and this is my friend, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? I'm trying to talk to you. We're, you know, I look at this and I go, it's as if Jesus says, look, I've used human analogies at some level. All right? He's trying to, I, by the way, I do not think that was, it was anything but tender satire. You're a respected leader. I don't think it was de- designed to be insulting to him. He, what, I think what Jesus is saying is, this is my respected teacher. You are overthinking this. And some of us can relate to that. I know I can. I have a tendency to do this. When you overthink things, it can make us vulnerable. It makes us vulnerable to anxiety. It can make us vulnerable to getting stuck in a mental loop. And I look at, I look at Nicodemus, and I think he's stuck in a mental loop. I, th- I think he's... he's Sometimes people say, you've you, you got to get out of your head. He's stuck right in there, right? And he can't get out of it. It's like Jesus saying, look, I've used human analogies to illustrate spiritual heavenly things. Let me put it to you in a... Okay, let me, let me put it to you in a different way then. What he then proceeds to do, and you, if you were to read through the passage, 13 through 21, you would see that Jesus shifts the, the conversation. It becomes more clearer. It's almost like Jesus says, remember when we opened this conversation up, what you said to me? You basically really, what you really wanted to know was who am I? What you really wanted to know is what is my mission? He goes, let me tell you then. And that leads to the unveiling of probably the, the most widely memorized scripture in history. John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus is speaking of himself. That whoever would believe in him would not perish, die but have life everlasting, life undying, life eternal, life overflowing, life now and yet to be, life. For God did not send his son into this world to condemn it because it's already got the sentence of death on it at some level. You can see it. But God sent his son into this world that the world might be saved. Right? It's just like that, that verse comes out of, think about it, it comes out of this conversation. That's when Jesus says that. He says it out of the conversation he's having with Nicodemus. Who are you really? You want to know who I am? I am, God's, I am the only begotten son of God. I am God's only son. You want to know what I've come to do? What I've come to do is to bring life. I've come to conquer death. And if you will open your heart to all who will and receive me, I bring that life, the new thing God is doing. This is what I'm talking about. But you cannot logic your way into this. You must believe, my friend. You must receive. You must open up and let God to birth this in your life. What are you talking about? And it's almost like Jesus says, and by the way, I know God is drawing you or you wouldn't be here right now. Now for us, as we look at it, I go, what, is, what, can I, what can we bring out of this? You know, how do we work this in? There's a couple of things that stand out, and I, I think it's worth us considering and then perhaps even just reflecting on how it affects our own, own lives with God. One of the things is this. It's cl- pretty clear to me. The Lord, will, I, I think we can say, the Lord will never turn away a hum- humble seeker. Even a cautious, tentative, almost reluctant one like Nicodemus, right? Nicodemus wasn't even sure he wanted to be identified with Jesus in the daytime. Like somebody at work. Maybe like some of us. Because the environment is not conducive to letting our interests be known or our love be known 
so we keep it safe and hidden. And I understand that because I, I, I actually do. I, I see because that's what Nicodemus was dealing with. He had, he had his, he had influence. He had, he had his reputation. He had something that had been built for years. He had friendships, his social circles, his family socials, everything in his life, and he knew he could feel where it was all going. The, 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 the momentum was not in Jesus's favor, and he could not. He was risking everything just to be with him. But at the same time, there was this part of him that felt like, I, can't, I have to take that risk. But when he, comes, when, he, when he does come, it's almost like I feel like Jesus could have said, look, are you serious? You want to meet with me? But you're ashamed to meet with me in daylight? No, I won't meet with you. Get out of here. The Lord did not say that, did he? But you doubt who I am? When you have more faith, come back to me. No. Let's talk. And I look at that and I go, wow, you know, it's almost like the, Jesus is, reminds us that he's willing to meet. He's willing to meet, meet us, all of us, in our honest, in our reluctant, even in our curiosity, in our, our doubting inquiries. You know what that tells? Such is the humility of God that he will meet us even in our doubt. He will meet us even, even when a part of us is rejecting him. Wow, what? In, you know, I was reminded of uh, something C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his great books, Surprised by Joy. Now, C.S. Lewis, some know him, some don't. I'll tell you why every, every follower of Jesus would do well to know C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is probably the most significant Christian writer of the 20th century. He has an amazing, his writing has an amazing capacity to endure uh, generational, generational shifts, which is, he, it's not like he, his, he, his words are written in a cultural capsule, but they have the capacity, principally speaking, to speak to us right where we are in this postmodern world. So it's, his, it's something about the way he approaches faith. I think it was connected to the fact that he was not always a believer. He was a brilliant man. He, was, he, was, you know, he, he, he taught at both Cambridge and, and, and Oxford. Um, his story of conversion, and he ends up writing, what, you know, surprised by joy, probably one of the great Christian books of all time, Mere Christianity. He's an apologist. That is, he's a person who not defends the faith, but he explains the faith and why it makes just as much sense to believe as it does to disbelieve. People say, well, I have to have, it takes faith. He, he gets into all that, talks about it, but he talks about it as one who wasn't always follow, a follower of Jesus. And he has a way of saying things and the analogies he uses that are very compelling. They speak to us even today. Surprised by joy, problem of pain. He wrote a book on pain. Um, he wrote uh, fiction books some of us will be immediately aware of. Chronicles of Narnia is one of them. All of them. C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book called The Screwtape Letter. One of my favorite books because it talks, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a made up story that's designed to show us how to grow as a follower of Jesus. It has a, it has a demon and an angel and they're having, they're having a little, um, how you say, strategic warfare around how to influence someone to move forward with God or move away from him. It's really interesting. It's very instructive, the observations that are made. I say all that because C.S. Lewis, he actually comes to Jesus. You know how he comes to Jesus? In 19, he comes at the age of 32 because he had been involved in a small group, a literary small group called the Inklings. And, one of, and a majority of the members were real followers, committed followers of Jesus, including one of them who actually had a great influence on his, faith, on his emerging faith. 
That was J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings. And Tolkien is the one who actually helps nurture with these other friends in this small group built around their literary interests and commonalities, this emerging faith in, in Jesus, where Lewis goes from kind of this reluctant disbeliever yeah, to someone who begins to slowly open up his heart. But he, the way he describes his conversion reminded me a lot of Nicodemus. And isn't surprised by joy? I asked him if they would put it up. I just want to read it. Check it out. Look what he says. All right, he goes, look, he talks about the day he accepts Jesus. He says, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work. He goes, what I started to feel was that steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. <laughs> and then that which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and I admitted that God was God. And I knelt and I prayed, perhaps that night, look at this, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing. Oh, look at this. The divine humility will, which will accept a convert even on such terms. Wow. The divine humility that accepts us even on those terms. But then he goes on to say something that's far less quoted, but directly connected. And check it out. He says this, the prodigal son, he at least walked home on his own. He, he hearkens back. He says he walked home on his own feet. He hearkens back to the story of the prodigal where Jesus talks about the prodigal who, who he had lost everything. He had squandered his inheritance. He was emaciated. He was broken. He had nothing left. He had been betrayed by his friends. He had no money. He envied even the pigs. And finally, it says somewhere in Jesus' story, the prodigal comes to his senses and says, what am I doing? Why don't I at least just go home to my father's house where at least... I can get a job. I mean, I'm not going to even ask him to let me be a son anymore. I'm just going to ask if he can give me a job where I can live. And then he made it, says, and he arose and he started making his way back. Lewis harkens back to that story and says, look, the prodigal at least decided to walk back home. He goes, but look at me. He says, who, but who can do, duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in, talking about himself, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape. The words, compelle entrare, compel them to come in have been so abused by the wicked men that we shudder at them, but properly understood they plumb the depth of the divine mercy. The, look at this phrase. Ah, oh, the hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men, and his compulsion is our liberation, our freedom. I look at that and I go, <laughs> the Lord will work with us in our doubts and our faith struggles. You hear that? And in a way, he waits to be wanted. The Lord waits to be wanted. And he waits to be wanted by people who hate him or what they think he is or sometimes what he has been portrayed as by those of us who claim to love him, perhaps. Perhaps sometimes the Lord also waits to be wanted even by his own, like those of us who love him but sometimes just don't have time for him. I think he waits to be wanted. And I look at that and I say, oh, the divine humility that invites us into humility. I've listened, you know, I've had some people, they'll say, I've invited them in church, they'll say, you know, hey, what do you think about maybe, 
you know, uh, I talk about Jesus maybe a little bit. and I try never to tell people that I'm a pastor. That's the first thing I try not to do. It's like conversation ender right there, right? <laughs> well, I say, you know, I go to this church called Cornerstone in the Mission. And, uh, <laughs> and this happened a couple of times, believe me. And, and so um, I say, I hear a lot of times, though, you know, I think I, I, I feel like I should go back to church. But, you know, my life's kind of, it's kind of a mess or, you know, I, I'm doing some stuff right now. I just, I think, you know what? I think I need to get my life together a little bit before I come. I think I, think I, need, I need to get some things straightened out and then I'll come. And I say, oh, you got it all, that's all backwards. It's not about getting ourselves good enough to come. It's about coming as we are and letting his goodness work in us. Very, none of us come. That will always be the story. Right? And then, and then the second thing for us to think about is this. That we need to be careful about overthinking. It's really connected to that. Especially when it comes to the way of Christ. The Christian way is a walk of faith. Requires childlikeness. That doesn't mean unthoughtfulness. Doesn't mean that at all. But it does mean an openness to faith and wonder. Remember Nicodemus was a brilliant learned man. He, as far as we know, he, he was the cream of the crop intellectually. Right? Jesus wasn't devaluing the power of intellect. He wasn't saying, oh, don't think, don't think. Just, he didn't say that. What he was saying was, your thinking, your, your intellect can only take you so far. Now, it gets you to a point, but it can't get you any, this thing is spiritual. This is a different plane. One is natural. This is spiritual. Natural, spiritual. I'm talking about something very different. God is moving in a very different way. And there must be something more. It's like something of a soul awakening, something of a rebirth, the infusion of light to break us out of the shadows. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about like when we're in a darkened room and we open up the windows and the light rushes in, like a hand receiving something that is, we just open it up and we receive it's priceless beyond measure. But we have to open it up first, like a mustard seed of faith germinating under the ground, starting to grow. No one can see it yet. I think Nicodemus's faith was already beginning to grow. He wouldn't have even been there if it wasn't. It was already growing. He was just wrestling with things. He didn't know. Now, and that struggle reminds me of this, and this is the third piece here, that struggle actually can be good because you know why? It forces us to wrestle with our limitations, doesn't it? It makes us cognizant of our need. One of the reasons I think Jesus shared this way with Nicodemus the way he did was he wanted him to realize he didn't have all the answers. He wanted him to actually to understand his lack. It's like, I'm glad you're saying you don't understand because in a way that's good because now we can talk about things that I can do in your life because you're open in a way that you weren't open before. If you don't see your need, I can't meet it. But now, now we can. So now, by the way, do you know that sometimes it's God's grace to allow us to struggle or at least not remove our struggle? So what are you talking about? Yeah, I am saying that. Sometimes he wants us to have certain, we're saying he wants us to lean towards him, not away from him. We might say, take it away. I've said that. Take it away. The Lord says, not today. <laughs> Why? Take it away. Not today. Here's this one. Maybe never. 
but I give you me always. I think sometimes God lets us hit a wall to come to grips with our limitations because he loves us and he wants to open things up for us. I talk about the breakdown that leads to the breakthrough, that leads to the breakout. Perhaps he doesn't want us to heal, he doesn't want us to heal or have our thorn taken from us. Maybe because he knows that if we get healed too quickly, oh boy, this is like, I'm in perilous places here. We'll run back to something we shouldn't run back to or we'll wander off in a direction that's going to cause us to be far less than what he's trying to get us to become. And so he teaches us to rely on him. Paul talked about, he called it his thorn in the flesh. Get it out of me. Deliver me, God. You see, the same God that worked miracles through this man, and yet he's going, why aren't you showing up here? And the Lord says, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, it's revealed to be all that you need. I will not take it away. See, sometimes the Lord says, no, it'll always it'd be like a limp. It'll always remind you. It'll always keep you close. It's okay. Paul had pride. Pride. It, it bound him. That, that, and, and he, was, that was, he knew he had it because he, he was great. And yet God was saying, I'm almost like, I'm almost going to let this walk with you so you will always know you need me. And that will keep you humble in your own eyes. And by, oh, it's, you know, it's instructive because I love it because by the time we get to the Nicodemus right here, the, I, th I actually think that when Jesus uses this idea of birthing as an analogy for the spiritual life, it's probably the best thing he could do. It's a great way to describe it. It's almost a perfect way. It's like a new life. You know, it's interesting because my wife and I, well, she was actually going through, we were cleaning out a particular part of our garage, and in it we had stacked some albums, photo, photo albums, Real ones, you know, like, like those things. Some of you may have seen them in the museums and stuff. They're like pictures. They're on these paper. And, uh, and so we had like photo albums um, from a different era and of our kids. Because they're all now in their 20s. The youngest one, 21. I mean, they're all, they're all there. And uh, the four of them. And so she was going back and she opened up this one and you had the pictures of them when they were just babies, right? She goes, you remember this? And then she, pulled, she actually had saved some of their clothes and one of them was like my youngest daughter's blankie that she never would let go of for many, many years. It wasn't until she was, you know, 13 years old. No, I'm kidding. It was, it was kidding. But it was a long time before she actually let that go. And we kept it. And Cheryl showed me, I go, yeah, and we started talking. I was talking about Nicodemus with her and about we have some rebirth. And she goes, do you remember when they were born? And I said, you know, I kind of have memory. I can't remember the, the specifics of each. Kind of, there was a period in our life. It just all started like blending together, right? She goes, remember that one time I was talking about it with her? And she goes, remember that one time when we were in the room? In the, in the room, she was having one of the, one of the, one of the kids. And uh, she was going through contractions. And, and on this, this is, I don't know how it is now, but the, they, they had a screen that would track the, the severity of the contraction, right? And so I remember, wow, I mean, I was watching it and I was there, I was going, oh, this, is, this is intense, right? I was watching it and, and cause, you know, because I had a little bit to do with this whole thing. I was looking at it and I was going, huh? And then I remember saying to her, I remember this one moment, I go, I go, because the first one was, like, was a couple of them were really high and then I go, oh, you're good. And then the next one was like only half. And I go, oh, that was an easy one. Bad, don't say that was a bad, that was the wrong thing. No, no, no. 
be quiet, right? Which I interpret as, shut up and get out of here. You, you have no feelings, right? And I was going, yeah, I, I, didn't, I, I didn't understand, I didn't understand. I go, oh, but it's better, it's a lot better. Get, no, no. And you know, it reminded me of, she goes, you don't understand how this feels. And it, I didn't. And it did remind me of something as I'm looking at this and listening to Jesus and thinking about those moments. And I thought, wow, birth is a painfully beautiful thing. The imagery speaks so eloquently that Jesus used because it's often out of the pain that beautiful things are birthed. Even now, Lord Jesus, would you birth beautiful things in us? May it be so, Lord. Out of the pain, bring the beauty. And that leads to the final thought, which is this, and it's just right there, is that, you know what? God does want to bring us into places of openness. He does. He's un- he, he wants us to approach him op- with openness in our hearts, and he desires that to be inside of us. We need to stay open to the new things that God wants to do in our lives. And I, I am convinced that God, just like he wanted to do with Nicodemus, he was saying, look, I know you've come a long way. I know you, you know a lot. I know you're very smart in his case. I also know that you're not even sure you should be here with me because I understand what this may cost you. But as the, as the oil lamp flickered in that room and that light flickered in the eyes of Nicodemus, Jesus saw in those eyes an openness and a yearning for something that he had to give him. And I think the Lord has new things he wants to do. Some of us are in seasons of transition. Some of us are on our way to a whole different stage of our life. We've got things around the bend. What are the new things that God wants to do in our lives? I'm hoping that as we make our way towards Easter, which is just these next few weeks sitting with Nicodemus, then we get to the cross, we get to the the celebration of resurrection. I'm hoping that God will do something in all of our hearts. And I include myself there. There will become awakenings to new things. Maybe we write some things down. Maybe we spend a little more time in the scripture. Look look at the last week of Jesus' life, which actually takes up a majority of the gospels in, in a certain way. There's nothing given more attention than that last week. All right, in terms of just a particular event. And think about, think about what that means for us. What is the new thing that God is, what are the new things that God's trying to do? What, what are things he's trying to teach us? What are songs that he wants us to sing? Some of us are in a season of tremendous blessing. Guess what? If we're in a season of blessing, sing songs of gratitude. Don't forget the Lord. Some of us are in a different season. We're in a season of transition, like I just mentioned. We might be young, we might be old, we might be in the middle of our life. Look. Every seasonal transition is a little bit scary and, and it has a potential for good, but it's a little bit scary. May we sing the songs of courage. Help me not to be afraid, Lord. And then others of us are carrying a tremendous weight and it's pain severe. And not everyone may know it. Maybe the pain because of something that's going on in our lives, literally, or something that's happening to someone we love, but it's a real pain. Let us sing the songs of grace. Songs of gratitude, songs of courage, songs of grace. Open, Lord, I'm open to you. Help me to find my voice the way you want it to be. So let me go ahead and pray. We'll have a time of giving, close out, but I'm gonna pray for us together. And Lord, I thank you for the time we've shared. I ask that you would continue to work in all of our lives. I pray that we would come with honesty and always remember that, that you, accept, <laughs> you accept us not only for the first time, but all the time with all of our contradictions, doubts, and fears. We don't have to qualify ourselves with you. I know holiness matters, faith matters, and I know that's sometimes what discipline, loving discipline is all about, but I also know 
that you never turn us away. No, that's not what you do. And so I, I, just, I just pray that you continue to work in our lives. Help our faith to grow even stronger. Break us into new things. Open us up to the good things that you have for us this next stage of our lives. We ask for your blessing, for your grace over these closing minutes we share together. In Jesus' name, amen.